Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast, you can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand. But for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. I reckon you're going to need to get yourself a cup of cocoa, your comfy slippers, some marshmallows, and a nice armchair for this one, because I am joined by Josh Proben, the wonderfully knowledgeable master of adventures in history land and author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, which is available to buy, if you haven't bought it already, from helion.co.uk. Josh, brilliant to have you on. Enlighten our guests about why I've pulled you onto the Napoleon Assist yet again. Well, apart from my sparkling personality, obviously, uh, I, I presume it's because that we did two episodes, rather long episodes, about Napoleon's marshals in Spain. You know, Napoleon's boys on a Spanish road trip. What could go wrong? And many things it turned out. As it turned out, many things could go wrong, but we didn't do anything. For the, for the British, for the Duke we of Wellington's. What was Wellington's boys doing in Spain? Absolutely. So having done Boney's boys in Spain, we're now doing Nosy's boys in Spain. Um, let's, let's just dive straight in, shall we? we? We need to kind of deal with the elephant in the room, I suppose. I want today to focus on those who, are, to a greater or lesser extent, have been overshadowed by Wellington and his career, but without being rude to the Duke and not suggesting that you know, he had a weight problem or anything, he is the elephant in the room. So quite quickly, what are your thoughts on Wellington as a command and also as a commander? 
Okay. Uh, asking me to talk about the Duke of Wellington is always in, in a succinct form is very dangerous, but nevertheless. Um, the Duke of Wellington was a great man. Put it just like that. That could be the, the end of the, the answer. But let's go with the late Richard Holmes, how he summed it up at the beginning of his, his uh, biography, The Iron Duke. Um, he summed it up by likening him to a painting. The closer you got, the more cracks showed. He said that he was not always good, but he was unquestionably great. And he tried, like we all do in our own ways, to be a good man where he could. And I tend to leave it at that, to be honest, in terms of my opinion of him as a human. As a commander, he was undoubtedly the outstanding military mind of the, 90, of the, of the British army in the 19th century. And he ranks high amongst the great captains of Europe as well. Um, daring to, to just pull the leg of cult Napoleon, better than Napoleon? Question mark, heavily well, emphasized. I mean, one of the things we do on, on history social media is, you know, rank the generals in an endless cycle of, uh, you know, uh, methodology and what ifs and assigning different categories of how this would happen if that didn't happen and things like that. And unfortunately, I mean, you know, for, for content, I should just should just outright say, yes, of course, the Duke of Wellington was better than Napoleon. But uh, principle, you know, in terms of, of, of talking history through principles, you cannot say one general is better than another all the time. All that we can say is that the Duke of Wellington fought Napoleon in one battle. And in that battle, he emerged the victor. You may derive from that what you will. Mm, yes, it's not entirely a fair reflection on either of them, though, is it? Because no. Napoleon, a long, long way from his best in 1815. I mean, apart from the, the concept behind the campaign, a long way from his best. Um, and then Waterloo is a coalition victory. I, I almost question, can you, you can't call it Wellington's victory any more than you can call it Blucher's victory because it's both of their victories. It's that plan. Um, we have, however, gone down the rabbit hole. Although what I will say is that, I, effectively, I, I agree with you with that. Um, and I would go so far as to say that on Napoleon's best day, he shines brighter than Wellington on his best day, which as far as I'm concerned is Salamanca. Yeah, the, the the glamour of Napoleon, the 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 brilliance of Austerlitz and things like that, yeah. does seem to be shinier than Wellington. But then again, that was Wellington all around, wasn't it? It was. It was very different styles, which I think is part of the reason. But we've started talking about Wellington again, and we're really not supposed to. There should be a sort of equivalent of a swear jar every time we get distracted into talking about the Duke. Um, I would make a fortune by the end of it, seriously. The focus of today's episode, though, is the divisional commanders. Now, for some, and I'm thinking here about how the role of the division changes across time. We see the, the sort of murmurings of cause systems that have begun earlier in, in the, the period are then really brought to the fore by Napoleon and his way of manipulating them. Divisions, people might not be familiar because the structures change, they vary between nationality. So talk us through 
a division, what what was it? I know that seems quite simplistic, but hey, you're, you're here to enlighten us, and I'm sure you will do. But then also, what's expected of an officer commanding such a unit? Okay. Uh, division was a temporary grouping of several brigades. In Britain, there was no permanent formation above a regiment, and as such, a beginning of, at the beginning of a campaign, commanding generals in the field would arrange their battalions into brigades. So you have four battalions is the rule, rule of thumb, depending how many battalions you have available. Um, four battalions ideally make up a brigade and three to four brigades make up a division. In the British army, major generals commanded brigades or if none were available, then the senior colonel or lieutenant colonel would do, the, uh, would do service. Uh, Wellington envisaged that lieutenant generals would command his divisions. So officers that would usually command army groups. And this gives you a little idea of what he thought that his divisions would act like. However, uh, he never had a, enough lieutenant generals. And so you would get just the senior major general of whichever brigade uh, was highest, highest uh, in seniority uh, commanding that division. And Irrespective of that, divisional commanders, therefore, if we're talking about what is expected of a divisional commander, you're talking, we'll, you know, look back at why Wellington wanted lieutenant generals. So he's wanting essentially guys who can command, who are used to organizing large formations of troops, essentially men who are used to independent command, even though he wasn't exactly good at uh, long leashes or anything like that. But um, so that's a big thing. A guy who is confident enough and experienced enough in commanding large groups. And of course, they have to be tactically adept. They have to be able to fight in a battle. They have to know how battles work. They have to know how to get troops around a battlefield. Uh, strategic sensibility was not necessarily a requirement though, despite the fact he wanted quite high ranking officers to do this. Because as, we, as I just said before, Wellington had direct command over the divisions, except for the detached ones, uh, such as Hills and later in 1813-14 in the army, broke into an effective core structure. And indeed before that actually, um, in 1810, 1811, Graham and Hill were already operating as commanders of at least two divisions plus allied brigades. But because Wellington had direct control over the divisions, they didn't need to worry so much about doing say what Napoleon's marshals did. And so sort of, you go over here with masses of men, your own little army, go instigate a fight and I'll come in and we'll crush them all together. Wellington's uh, system of organizing the army around these divisions was that in miniature scale and one that he had very tight control over. So you're looking at very brave men, you know, high uh, senior officer casualties are not unusual in Wellington's army. Most of them got wounded at some point. Um, you're looking at intelligent men, hopefully, guys who can at least organize and feed their troops, get them from one place to another. and that and and you know fighting ability and those are the three main important things you're looking at in a divisional commander yeah as you say wellington not known as a a delegator he's not somebody who just says here's a task go make it happen um which you could argue sits in contrast to uh 
Napoleon in in some respects, but let's let's not get drawn too deeply into that comparison. And as you say, I'm glad you draw the distinction between what the commander of a corps has to do because they are very different things. Um, as you say, the the ability to administer, the ability to follow orders, highly valued, uh, and failure to do that would have and did uh, invoke some pretty stern rebukes. Uh, we'll get to Crawford and talking about how Wellington was damn crusty after the action on the COA. Um, but independence of thought, taking the initiative, was not necessarily something that Wellington valued, partly because of the potential for it to go wrong, partly because Wellington had the plan in his head and didn't really want other people to mess up his perfectly laid plan, even though there was flexibility within the plan because he was aware of you know, the whole thing of no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> Wellington knew what he wanted and he knew the way in which he saw it unfolding. Um, and so to, to have somebody mess that up didn't usually go down particularly well. No, no, it didn't. And this is this is uh, a classic thing about Wellington's system of command. It's the do just just do what I tell you for heaven's sake, basically. And he had a and I, I uh, there's a that famous thing he said about um, his his generals were heroes so long as he was there to command them but were children as soon as he quit the field. That's how he felt about most of the, the officers that came under his eye. It's interesting that he didn't have a lot of choice as well, unlike Napoleon, about who he got. He was only able to actually ask for, I think, seven or eight of the divisional commanders uh, or generals that he had under his command. And he it was all because it was all it was all really horse guards you're not talking about wellington's generals you're talking about the king's generals and so the, the he could get given anybody and he was very upset about some of the people he got like erskine who he said well isn't he mad and then torrens went well he's a little mad but he's okay at the moment and i'm sure he won't go mad during this campaign he's very clever when he's sane and and Wellington was fine <laughs> you, could, you couldn't do anything about it no it's it's i find I and mean, this is an interesting thing and again we're going down the wellington rabbit hole but this is important that wellington is deeply invested in this whole ancien regime system. He's a product of it. He doesn't believe in substantial reform to the old ways, but he does find himself frustrated by that old system in that inability to promote officers who he considers worthy. And as you say, the, the restrictions that it places, not least because for a good chunk of this conflict, Wellington's a bit too junior. You know, he's, he's actually operating above his pay grade in some respects, but his ability to generate results is what enables him to request more men. And ultimately he's commanding really a bigger force than perhaps he should have done ordinarily in, in his career. Um, but there was no way once he started getting results that somebody was going to supersede him. They'd done that and convention of Sintra had happened. <laughs> that didn't go down well. So we're not going back there again. Um, what are your thoughts on Wellington as somebody who's got to engage with the system and whether or not he really likes it this is uh, 
Wellington, like you say, was some sort of part of the Ancien Regime system, right? That I don't think can be argued. He is, however, a part of it. How, yeah, however, to say that is to assume that there was no liberal movement within that system. Uh, I believe Jeremy Black is uh, did a talk recently about where he where he spoke about the fact that actually the Ancien Regime was in some ways much more liberal than the conservative um, uh, sort of constitutional regimes that came after the Napoleonic Wars. And Wellington was one of these sort of, he was a, he was a child of the, he, he was a product of the ancient regime, but he was also a product of the enlightenment. And so he understood what was going on and he wasn't exactly, although he was dead set against parliamentary reform, he was not unimpressed by the idea that you could make things work within the system. You know, he, he did feel like you could use this system in a more liberal way, despite being a conservative, which sounds very strange. Nevertheless, the system, which is a long way around of saying that the system is interacted with by everybody who took part in it, because that was what was there. That was how you got on in life. It wasn't necessarily that anybody liked it. People who went through the system and succeeded thought, well, it worked, it worked well for me. What's wrong with continuing that way? Um, the, this obviously negates its flaws and its problems, but nevertheless, I doubt he really had very strong feelings on the matter. When his military career was over, he took the stance that it did work, could be made to work, and therefore, why fix it? Um, the fact that after the rank of colonel, everything happened by seniority, seniority. So you would, if you lived long enough, become a general, is one of the things that Wellington actually did have to deal with as a, as a problematic issue, because that meant the generals available to him in Spain were mostly all very old. And the only way horse guards could get a promising younger general, uh, a prom promising younger field officer to become a general is to en masse promote everybody ahead of them therefore making them next in seniority to become a major general. So, and this happened in 1813 and 14, where you had up to 82 generals uh, of major general's rank being made lieutenant general. So some other guy can become a major general <laughs> faster. And this is the way, this, the, the hokey way the system works. It was a weird kind of fix it as you go thing. And, uh, it could allow for very rapid promotion for very talented individuals if they had the connections to make it happen. But whether he, and obviously he had very good connections and it worked really well for him. So he really had nothing to complain about until he wanted specific men to come and command. So I think as with most things that, most things with Wellington, he liked it sometimes and sometimes he hated it. That's very well said. It always strikes me that he's fine with the system up until the point where it's not working for him. And then he's got plenty to say about what's not good about it. And these are things that kind of bubble the whole way through. Um, but that's perhaps a discussion for another day, you know, the challenges that he's, he's facing over the course of his career. 
Let's talk about people though. Um, foremost amongst Wellington's visual commanders are of course people like Roland Hill, Thomas Picton and, and Black Bob Crawford. We'll cover some less famous individuals in due course. I, I want to shine a light on others rather than just the famous names. But let's start with the most mild-mannered, shall we? And perhaps the most capable, I would say, of those in the form of Roland Hill. Now, Hill has the, the nickname from the troops, Daddy Hill, such as his kind of affable amino. I think he swears on maybe two or three occasions. Um, I mean, usually we get through about 10 occasions of swearing just in the outtakes of the Napoleon says. So that's, that's really quite some good going, in my opinion. Talk us through what sort of a, a man he was, um, because, you know, that reputation of being the most capable and the most mild-mannered, is it justified? Absolutely. Um, and speaking as someone who very rarely swears, um, I've always liked Hill a lot. <laughs> you are the Daddy Hill of the podcasting world, there's no question of that. I'll take it. Um, Hill was all of those things. And he is all of those things to the, the extent that sometimes you wonder, oh, there surely must be more. Surely people think this way about him because there's just not enough written about him. But that is the truth. That is the truth. There isn't a lot written about him. Um, there's only one sort of important biography been written about him in the last 20 years or something like that. And because of that, you don't have the wealth of discussion, endless discussion that you have with Wellington. And as a result, he remains this sort of angelic, kindly country gentleman leading his divisions very creditably during the Peninsula War. He was a, an open-faced, placid-looking man who was only heard, like you say, to openly swear twice in his military service and very mildly by today's standards as well. Um, his care and affection for his men and those of allies and even the enemy were so universally admired and acknowledged that he was known as daddy, um, which is an interest, you know, interesting thing. And it's probably something Jimmy Chen will turn into a t-shirt someday, but um, <laughs> who's the daddy? I should say that was specifically a nickname given to him by the men of the second division, which was his division. And generally the rule is the nicknames come from your boys and everybody else will, you know, you can call him that, but he's, that's our nickname for him. That's our thing. And um, he was born uh, the son of a Shropshire gentleman. He was of the gentry. He was seven, born in 1772. Uh, and he joined the army as a young age. He joined a line regiment. So very, he wasn't in the guards or anything special like that. He had a very sort of, um, he had a very open-eyed view of, the army because he came in at a not just sort of a county regiment and interestingly enough he then spent two years at a military academy in Strasbourg uh, so he was somewhat educated as a soldier unusually so by most of the <laughs> most of the battalions of the line uh, and then saw extensive service before coming to Spain with Moore and like you say, the trust that Wellington placed in this guy is really quite unusual when you consider the others. And based on, it's difficult to say what it's based on because he, he did know him a little before the war, I think, but he must have cottoned on really fast to something in Hill that made him um, just sort of instinctively trustable. 
maybe it was that maybe it was that just calm gentlemanly good-natured sort of roly-poly demeanor that he had that made people trust him but the judge yeah he, uh, un unlike anybody else or practically this man's judgment was something that Waddington knew he could rely on is that turning point perhaps Talavera in that Hill is the one who's in command of the Hill, the the it's mm -hmm. called the Medellin. Um, yeah, Hill, Hero de Medellin. That that um, is that the French conduct a night assault on effectively, mm -hmm. and Hill is in the thick of the fighting, but is instrumental in pushing the French back and ultimately thwarting that attack, which comes very close to success. And so you know, hey, there's there's nothing better than getting a result like that in early to then subsequently lead to Wellington kind of trusting the guy to, to get yourself out of a tight spot. Contrast that to what happens to Sherbrooke's division at Talavera, which overextends it, or a portion of it overextends itself. And he's got to plug the gap in the line with what's left of his reserves. And that's kind of, this is the, the, the squeaky buttocks moment of, of Talavera for him. Um, so perhaps, do you think that's fair? Is, is that perhaps the root cause? I think it. I think it. Um, it tallies with the dates because um, he'd only. I think he would only have seen him actually fighting uh, around Rolito, Vimiero, and Oporto before Talavera, and he'd done very credibly in all of those. But Talavera, he did actually have a great test to actually hold the position, and he did that very well under just rather trying circumstances. And it's notable that from 1810, 11 onwards, Hill is allowed with about two divisions to go off, cover sieges, operate on his own in Estremandura and stuff like that. So it must have been those formative years in Portugal, Wellington decided, this is the guy I can trust out of my sight. He's a hero, no matter where he is, not a child when I leave him. Yeah, I mean, that we come back to that comment by Wellington, don't we, which is, it strikes me as a kind of chicken and egg scenario, that one, because if you're not prepared to give people the, the, the distance to try and do these things, they're never going to learn. And actually, sometimes you've got to make mistakes to mm -hmm. then get it right. You know, you know it's very interesting that the, the, the theatre of war is quite small in itself. So certainly in Portugal, it would be very difficult almost to give people the room they needed. And it's interesting to ponder that thought as to whether he, in those closer confines, just decided that most of these guys can't be left alone to do stuff. Or whether it's that thing, like you said at the beginning, that I have the idea, this is my idea, and all of you are going to do it differently if I let you, <laughs> if I let you go. So I want to make sure you do it my way. And I, 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 I'm wondering, I'm wondering where, I'm wondering which one sort of informs the other and, and how you get to this, how, you, how, how, we can, how we could like come to some sort of determination about that because it's true, he didn't exactly give people chances Although now I'm thinking of a couple of instances where he did and they messed up. 
but that was later in the war. So rabbit hole time again. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Crawford may be the answer to this. We'll, we'll come mm. back to this when we talk about the Coa. Going back to Hill for a moment, though, let's have a just a dwell for a moment on his battlefield record, because like you say, he's sort of out on the limb um, for a, a good chunk of the war. Uh, Wellington kind of handles the main theatre of operations as is Wellington's way, and Hill gets the kind of the lesser stuff, which has attracted less attention. Um, but he's instrumental during the Pyrenees campaign. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the battle off the top of my head. I want to say Sororum, but I think I may have got that wrong. When Hill has effectively had to fend off Saul's attack, Wellington arrives with reinforcements, sees that Hill has basically won and, and refuses to take the command and say, no, the day is yours, finish the job. Um, but he's also successful elsewhere. Aurora Molinos springs to mind. So talk us through Hill on the battlefield. Arroyo Molinos is a, is a good example of Hill in his in, independent capacity, uh, seizing an opportunity in a way. It's an example of the guerrilla war, where Hill pounces on an exposed French division and crushes it. Lots of what Hill does between 1811 and 1812-13 is kind of what the independent partisan columns were doing, just controlling an area by movement and taking the opportunities where you can. So that's very impressive for a guy who doesn't have a sort of like a dazzling reputation for uh, like some of Napoleon's marshals do. Um, I think the battle you're thinking of is possibly Saint-Pierre, um, which uh, he, which Wellington said that um, it was the soundest thrashing the French had ever had. And I mean, it's, 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 it's a nice tenor phrase, isn't it? Wellington, Wellington thrashes the French. This goes back to the Austerlitz thing, you know, he doesn't decisively defeat them. He just thrashes them every time they come at him and they go, and they go away. But yes, Hill was very good at thrashing people. His battlefield record is actually very solid. And like you say, throughout the, the Pyrenees, uh, he was nothing but as usual, Hill-like, he was Hill. You could depend on him to do once Wellington was asked uh, who would take over from him if he was wounded, I believe the ranking went, he, he was a little unsure himself. He at one point figured that it might be Sir John Hope, who was one of the lesser uh, known chaps, but uh, was of senior rank and seemed to be very trustworthy. Graham as well. He was very keen on Graham. He could have, he could have taken over, he said. Also, Hill. Hill was on the list as well, on the short list of the three, Hope, Hill, and uh, uh, Graham. Although he later also said that because Beresford was the only one who knew how to feed an army, uh, he would probably have taken over. But that shows you kind of that he, he really trusted Hill with a lot, including considering him to be a possible successor should he have to leave Spain. And it's interesting as well, now I've just said Beresford. Hill almost commanded at Albuera. He got an eye infection or something. You know, he got malaria and he had to go home. And that division that was attacking Badajoz was given to Beresford. Mm, that could have been very different, couldn't it? Had, mm -hmm. uh, had Hill been there, or, or maybe not, but 
you know, we, we've discussed. He, he, uh, he gave the French a thrashing at Saint-Pierre, so <laughs> that was sealed again. Was... <laughs> yeah, could have been very different. Let's talk about Hill's time as commander-in-chief, because you have this really odd situation, don't you? Um, after Wellington resigns as CNC in order to become prime minister, um, something that he kind of grumbles about having previously kind of said, well, obviously, you know, if you're a member of the cabinet, then surely you should have to resign. Um, so that, that's curious. But anyway, um, he does resign. So Hill takes over. And yet Wellington's premiership comes to an end, as we know, all tied up with the whole business around the Great Reform Bill. And suddenly Wellington, <laughs> the person who you would expect to be CNC, isn't and so you have this kind of gap until Hill sadly dies uh, at which point Wellington then takes over. Um, I always wonder about Hill kind of being in Wellington's shadow as commander-in-chief and deferring to him far too much sort of in peninsula war mode. Do you think that's fair? Yeah I think that's fair. Hill was Wellington's man. Um, they were good friends and he was never someone that Wellington would ever have had to worry about trying to get his job. I think that's a very, another very important thing about Hill. His ambition was just to be a good soldier and do his job. And in Spain, that job was to do what the Duke of Wellington said. And he admired the Duke of Wellington immensely. And as a result, put these two things together, you have that old, that, that sort of, I served under him in Spain He's my commander in chief in many in, in more ways than one. And therefore, in a position that you come to where he's the commander in chief of the British Army and Duke of Wellington is Prime Minister. Um, it's well, I mean the Duke of Wellington is the Duke of Wellington. It didn't matter if it was the Prime Minister, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Hill would absolutely defer to Wellington. Whether or not, as Wellington's man, this deferral is as negative as is, as has been suggested, is so is for someone who's more versed in what the requirements of the army were between eighteen fifty and eighteen fifty two, and whether or not those requirements demanded a level of reform that the post-Crimean fallout lets us believe was necessary. I'm not actually sure about the, the nuts and bolts of that, but certainly Hill was not really his own man. He was just the man at the helm. He was man at Weddington's helm. Yes, I, I think that's certainly from what I've read that that seems to be fair. Um, if folks are interested in visiting Hill's grave it is underneath Westminster Abbey um, which was quite a kind of surprising little discovery when I stumbled across the, the little um, thing embedded in the floor. Uh, he's off in the corner sort of to the back left of the altar. Um, look for him he's, he's there. Um, but then like so many in, in Westminster Abbey, you, you're almost sort of tripping over people, literally. I mean, they're, they're kind of buried underneath the floor and you kind of pass people without even noticing. We should move on to discuss other commanders though. Picton springs to mind next, marked contrast to Hill. 
Um, you're almost talking chalk and cheese here, aren't you? Oh. A bullish individual, unquestionably brave, but as has become much more um, widely aware, um, much more widely known, a deeply controversial individual, given his support of slavery, and then, depending on, on where you think the significance lies, also particularly for his role in sanctioning the torture of a mulatto girl. Um, and just for folks who aren't aware, am I right in saying that, because I don't want to brush that aside, you know, this is an important aspect, uh, not least in showing the two sides of the man and the fact that actually you can have two deeply kind of conflicting things in terms of what we want to, to emphasise in terms of personal virtues embedded in the same individual. He escapes that prosecution for the torture. Well, initially, actually, he is prosecuted, but he escapes on a technicality, if I'm right in saying. And I think that technicality is that it's a Spanish colony. Spanish law technically permitted what he did. And so, therefore, he acted within the law that was in effect in the colony at the time. Is that the legal gymnastics that plays out? That's the legal gymnastics that I'm aware of, yes. Um, he, uh, he tortured a, a, about a 14 or 15-year-old girl uh, who was uh, suspected as having aided and abetted in a robbery. Her name was Luisa Calderon who gave evidence against him uh, in the first trial, which was uh, before the King's Bench in 1806. And in that trial, he used the defense, like you say, Spanish law, Spanish colony. I was given orders by General Abercrombie to conduct, to govern Tobago uh, uh, along these lines at this moment with the added addendum that also martial law is in force, which is also why the Privy Council, he was up, he was up before the Privy Council as well for uh, unnecessary cruelty towards the enslaved population and controlling the population as it was. And they were very, very worried about the idea that he had gone around shooting people out of hand, uh, which apparently he had. And uh, this one where he picketed her, which is a curious torture where you tie someone to a, a yoke and have them suspended so they can only, I believe, put the weight of one toe on the ground. And you do that day after day until they break. Um, is a very unusual form of torture to begin with. And one that he said he was, he was allowed to inflict because of Spanish law. The lawyer, his, the opposition lawyers made the point that there is actually nothing in the law relevant to the colonies that you can torture people. And that was why he was convicted in the first one. But through a technicality, and I don't know what the technicality was, he managed to get a retrial where he presented evidence showing that although, yeah, in the colonies, it doesn't say you're allowed to torture people. Spanish law clearly says you can. And here are all the evidences that show that they did torture people. And so what happened was they overturned the guilty verdict, uh, but then asked the question, which is, I think, rather pertinent. As a British subject who knows that it is illegal by British law 
to uh, torture a free person, how on earth did you think that this was a good idea? And then the court realizing that things had swung around to almost a completely new trial, uh, they uh, basically said, dismissed Picton uh, so they could re-deliberate and they never, um, they never reconvened. Yeah, I mean, there are, it's important for people to realize that this is not a period where law is concrete. I mean, yes, even to this day, there is interpretation of law anyway. That's why you get judicial reviews of things. But the, the way in which law operates in different regions is very fluid. And when you go out to the colonies, it's even more fluid because we're talking about martial law, resisting the temptation to go too far down the military discipline line. But the army has its own military codes or of military law, which are actually inferior to British civilian law, but they're also inferior to any other type of civilian law. So you have a situation where if you're in the colonies, you actually that your last resort is to apply the military codes of punishment to the wider population. You should always take preference, uh, give precedence to other nations' jurisdictions. Well, then you're dealing with another entirely different legal code and it gets very messy. And that's why you get situations like this, where somebody who has clearly been a git, to put it really quite flippantly and mildly, is able to get away with, with something like this. Pixon, I don't know if, it is a con if it's fair to say that it's a contradiction, but on the one hand, you've got that. And that's a very key part of Picton. And the other side is that he's incredibly brave. But I'm not quite done with Picton being a git, if I'm being honest with you, because he doesn't always have the greatest relationship with his troops, does he? And I'm thinking here, quite obviously, of the Connacht Rangers, where he turns around and describes them as the Connacht footpads, um, a man who was not afraid to use the lash, um, who, in contrast to Hill, did like to use an expletive when he felt it necessary, uh, which was not considered genteel behaviour, but was the nature of the man. So what kind of a commander was he? In the British Army, there was a breed of officer that could be said to be of the regimental stamp. And Thomas Picton, who was born into a Welsh gentry family in 1758, uh, and then it was an ensign at 13, could be said to be one of them. Picton would remember the days of wide uniform facings and, and long tails, hued hair and, uh, and uh, white gaiters and things like that. And, and white powdered hair, hair even. And he had experience in Prussian service, which is probably where he gets his oh. disciplinary streak from yes. because he was on half pay and he traveled around a bit. And so that probably explains quite a lot. He's, he's, this is a very 18th century, mid 18th century minded guy. And I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Also, he was very tactically aggressive as a commander. He was one of those guys that we're saying at the beginning, not terribly strategically brilliant. He was uh, he was an okay organizer. He could he could get a he could get a division to where it needed to go. But he was very tactically aggressive, and he was very good at understanding the tempo of a battle and timing and things like that. And that's what you need in terms of tactics. Um, so in that sense, he was a good battlefield commander. Yeah, but he wasn't a commander who was going to get much sympathy from his troops or much love from them because he was one of those types of commanders, the Prussian type commander, you might call him probably anachronistic to use that phrase because not all Prussian commanders were savages or anything like that. But he was also a very curious bird who liked to dress in civilian clothes, which had a weird effect of slightly endearing him to the troops who knew what sort of a man he was. At Bethako, uh, uh, he, he commanded his division with a sleeping cap still on his head. And he, he was personally, like you say, very brave. He was wounded at Badajoz and was a critical force at Vittoria, roaring into action, damning his men from there to tomorrow. Um, however, I believe it was uh, during Sulth's counteroffensive in the Pyrenees where he and I think Cope ended up being bundled back by Soult, uh, much to Wellington's anger. And um, this is again, uh, uh, this is again sort of proving the Dukes, their heroes and children at the same time. Picton is a very good example of that for Wellington. He's, he's a hero when Wellington is there to tell him what to do and to put him where he needs to be. But generally speaking, he's, he's a bit of a loose cannon and will get probably bogged down in minutiae and uh, probably end up quite indecisive strategically if you let him out of sight of someone who is someone like Wellington. So I think Wellington valued greatly his ability to fight and get a division moving like at Victoria uh, and really swinging that battle in favor of the allies decisively. But generally speaking, he's, he's not one of the top rank overall commanders like Hill or even Graham Graham's a very interesting guy, which we'll get to later, but I think that's 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 Picton. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, Picton is not somebody who you can see succeeding Wellington by any stretch of the imagination. You'd almost take Picton out of the theatre before you let him take over. Um, I, I'm very struck by, and I'm now trying to remember who said it, this... this common thing that we perhaps quite often discuss when we're talking about commanders, which is that the rank and file considered there to be two types, the come-ons and the go-ons. And, and the difference, of course, being that the go-ons are the people who are quite prepared to sit at the back and let other people put themselves in harm's way. Uh, and you give the orders, go on, you go over there whilst I stay here and stay safe and, and within the confines of what you, how safe you can be in a 19th century battle. But you know, not really in the thick of it. Now, Wellington's not one of those. He's always in the thick of the fighting, the men know that. Crawford, 
as we'll come on to discuss in a, in a moment, is a come on type of commander. So is Picton. And this is probably why um, Picton ends up being wounded a, a number of times. You've mentioned um, Badahov, where, am I right in saying he scales the walls with his decision? He was, yeah, he was definitely in the thing. He was definitely down at the at the glasses for certain. I don't know if he actually got on the walls, but uh, he was wounded because he was with them. He was, and that's a, <laughs> an insane thing. And then at Catra Brown, this is the famous one that we we tend to talk about. Yes, sure, he's killed at Waterloo. Um, bullet to the the forehead. Uh, he's wearing a top hat, you know that civilian clothing thing that you were talking about earlier. But at Catra Bra, he was actually wounded. He received a bullet to the groin, which, bearing in mind, you know these are commanders who ride on horseback. That's particularly all wounds are painful, obviously, but that's going to be a particularly difficult wound to deal with. Yet he decides to conceal it because, effectively, he knew Wellington needed him to to stay at his post. Um, which gives you a kind of a, a sense of this is why I come back to what extent is this a contradiction? I, mean, I don't think it is necessarily a contradiction, but it is something that takes your head, takes a lot of kind of getting your head around that on the one hand, he can be quite a deplorable human being. And yet on the other hand, demonstrate something that we've always held in high esteem in society, which is an incredibly brave individual with a clear sense of duty and willing to put himself and his personal well-being second in order to fulfill that duty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's it is one of those things. And of course, to be a good soldier, you don't necessarily have to be a good person. And for the Peninsular okay. Army, they may well have actually liked Picton, um, despite the fact that he whipped them and swore at them because they kind of saw some of the lower ranks grit in him. He, they could see in him that he was willing to share their dangers and, uh, and quite happily spoke to them in a language they understood. So you do have that strange, that strange sort of uh, contradiction in Picton and with Waterloo, it reminds me of an interesting thing, however, that we shouldn't go too far the other way into thinking he was terribly beloved because after hiding the wound he received at Catrabras, which some people say was a cannonball, and no. that means it was if it, but if it was this is the thing if it was a cannonball, then it was the contusions caused by the passing of the ball. The, so what it would have what passed the French called, Yeah, what the French call the vent de boulet. Um, so it was known to knock people off their feet, rupture blood vessels, cause massive bruising. The displacement of the air around it basically causes the wound, and uh, but I've I've read that it was a cannonball in one place, which seems insane. But if it, it but it's possible. Point is, he was wounded at Catrabrine and covered it up. Then he gets to Waterloo, and his last words are "Charge, boys! Hurrah, hurrah!" And uh, he dies uh, by a bullet to the head, and he is immediately robbed. Um, a soldier falls out of the line to try and pick his pocket. No one would do that to Hill. Yeah, that's a fair point. Actually, I mean, I was about to 
turn around and say slightly flippantly that's you know wellington's scum of the earth for you isn't it mm. this is what the rank and file do like to do and hey senior general he's he's gonna have plenty in his pockets um but yeah that is a point that actually would hill's men have done the equivalent they wouldn't because his horse went down during the end of the battle of waterloo and everybody was horrified because they thought he was dead interesting i didn't know that that's an interesting point of comparison isn't it mm. let's let's keep the the momentum going so from one disciplinarian to another another famous name robert crawford black bob crawford as he's known in some circles huge reputation for fierceness uh, marcus recently said yeah crawford he's one of yours isn't he he's a flogger um, i think marcus thinks i have some great affection for people who use the whip uh, that's that's not the case i hasten to add in, in my defense um crawford what's he like as a leader that's a deep question isn't it it is a deep, it is a deep question but he was a, i think he was a very good leader i think he is a standout leader was crawford uh during the retreat to vigo which is the parallel thing from coruña which crawford was in charge of uh, one rifleman wrote to him that he seemed to have been created to command in times of dire crisis He'd lock you away from falling out of formation, all right? To get some water, he'd put you on charge. He'd, he'd bawl you out for deviating around a flooded part of the road. He'd flogged and went up in the blue light, but he was a brilliant field commander and he knew how to lead. And <clears throat> it was probably only his bitterness at being held over for higher command um, that held him back from greatness and his temper. Uh, he was certainly very tactically gifted, and to be honest, it wouldn't, I don't think it would be um, too egregious to say that he became a legend within the army while he was there. For, and he was a very complicated guy. I really wish I had by this point read the new book about him, because which has supposedly got a lot of new stuff. But from what I know of him right now, he was, he was a very capable, he was a very impressive leader. You had yeah. to be to run the light division. That's absolutely true. For folks who aren't familiar, Ian Fletcher has written, I'm almost tempted to say it looks like he's done a muir in oh. the sense that he's written this, this doorstopper of a book, um, rather like Rory Muir's two-volume biography of Wellington. And I've received it. Um, I haven't, I'm ashamed to say, had the opportunity to go through it yet because it is such a, a detailed read. Uh, so I'm very interested to see what he's turned up there because that could be um really quite something yes Crawford he's a funny one isn't he um because he as you say he had that inclination to turn around and and take you to task for seemingly quite small things you know deviating from a puddle and then he'd give you a lecture on how that would slow down the advance of an army which was therefore detrimental to the army's objects and yet isn't it Crawford who, when he sees an officer being carried by a member of the rank and file across a river, bellows at the guy, you will put that man down at once to, to the member of the rank and file. And so the officer gets dunked in the river because Crawford has this sense of how officers should conduct themselves. And so this officer who thinks he's gonna keep his feet dry all the way across this river <laughs> ends up being dropped wholesale. Uh, into the deepest part of, of the, um, the river and, and has to, and Crawford makes him 
walk back across the river to the bank and then recross the river. Um, so again, it gives you a measure of the guy that he, he has expectations of everybody. This isn't just a keep the rank and file in check. It's you conduct yourself in a certain way. And if you fail to meet those exacting standards, I will take you to task for it, which makes him quite a difficult person in, in so many respects. I think Crawford, in a way, suffered from being too educated in, in the military sense. He was another one of these people who had actually been in the army quite a while. He'd been to, a, I think he had been to a military academy and yeah, he, he had served in other, um, form, I think he'd served in foreign units, possibly, in Hanover. And he had vast experience of, um, of how things are supposed to be done. And he was uh, involved in the training of the light infantry to some extent, or at least was known to Moore enough that he entrusted the light brigade to him. Uh, he was one of the most professional officers in the army by the time of the Peninsula War in terms of his um, understanding and experience. And that built in him this kind of, this is how things are supposed to work, right? If you are carrying an officer across the river. He's not doing his job. You're not doing your job. Efficiency is going down and we're all going to die. So you drop that man and uh, we'll teach you both a lesson. You'll be flogged and he will get all the stuff wet. So <laughs> uh, this Crawford is, there's tons of stories like that about Crawford. Um, and they all build this picture of, of like I say, a very complicated individual as a human being and as a commander. Yeah, I mean, we have to talk about, so, so we've talked about how he's, he's a, a come on style of commander. You know, he's very poised at battles such as um, Osaka. He's killed in the breaches at Theodad Rodrigo because he placed himself here in the thick of the fighting, you know, at, 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 sorry, at Osaka. Um, he is the one who's standing there watching the French come up that hill, timing to perfection that moment where he orders his men to stand and unleash the volley and charge. Mm -hmm. um, Avenge the death of Sir John Moore. <laughs> precisely. In fact, they might have not even fired. They might have just gone straight in with the bayonets. I can't remember, which is shameful. Um, but it, it gives you a, a sense of this guy. You know, he knows how to lead in, in the thick of the fighting, but also is inclined to place himself in the thick of the fighting in order to be able to use that knowledge to maximum effect. But there is that incident where it all goes rather wrong for him, which is the current we've touched, sort of skirted around the edges of this already. And you were saying that you were kind of scratching your head about why is it that Wellington, at what point does he have, Wellington have this sense that I can't trust these men. I wonder if the COA is the genesis of that. And the reason I'm thinking this is that Crawford has a, almost this kind of semi-independent status up until that point. So give folks a, a sense before I start disappearing off down rabbit holes again, give folks a sense of the issue at the Coa and what Wellington, what Wellington's beef, if you like, is. Mm. Uh, well, at the Coa, you have this strange uh, incidence of Crawford, who up to that point has been doing a fabulous job of guarding this frontier uh, against Ney, I believe. And 
Uh, on this particular day, he lets his guard down. He has somehow managed to allow himself to encamp with no easy line of retreat and is not aware of what the French are doing. And Ney launches a surprise attack on his camp at the car and surprises it completely, drives it all the way back towards this narrow bridge over a, um, a teetering gorge. And it looks like everybody's gonna get killed or they're all gonna have to surrender and half of the brigade or division. Is it a division yet or is it a brigade? It's a, it's a it might be a division by this point. It's might be a division. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, he could lose half of the division easily in this, and it's only because the light division is the light division that it manages to rally and puts up a fight, and uh, they manage to scramble back across the bridge, and then they hold the high ground behind the bridge until nightfall. But it's an it's an outright defeat and one that up until that point Crawford had been able to avoid by just being on top of everything. And so for the light division, which is supposed to be the screening force of the entire army to get surprised like this by the French is something that Wellington is at first very angry about because it's in, and fairly, yeah, reasonably speaking, Wellington's right, it's incompetence that allows it to happen. Crawford lets his guard down. He doesn't keep a good enough eye on the French and has selected for himself a, a place to encamp that is predicated basically on his idea that he's safe. Um, and so at first, Wellington is absolutely furious about it, although he does forgive Crawford because I think Crawford manages to explain some logical reasons why it happened. You know, it's always an accident. You know, it's always an it's always an accident whenever these things happen. And Wellington was generally all right. Well, accidents happen, but let's not have let's not have this let's not let have this thing happen too many more times, shall we? Uh, that's why Wellington's angry because basically Ney beats him up. Yeah, I mean, there's that famous famous exchange, isn't there, between them, where Crawford and Wellington meet and. Wellington says that you know I, I'm pleased to see that you're safe. And uh, Wellington, uh, sorry, Crawford, goes, "Oh, I was in no danger." And Wellington, classic Wellington, turns around with a, "You may not have been, but I most certainly was." <laughs> and Crawford goes away, sort of saying, "He's damned crusty this morning." Um, but it gives you that sense of, of Wellington's fear, you know, to lose such a proportion of his army at that point in the campaign. This is. Uh, 1810, this is the prelude to um, what becomes the, the third in French invasion of Portugal. He's got to take, the, he, Wellington knows, he's got to take the army all the way back to Torres Vedras. Well, if, if he can't stop the French before that point, he's got to take it all the way back to Torres Vedras. So to lose that portion of his army, the shockwaves that could have sent through the government back home as well, that could have been huge. Crawford, I want to be nice to Crawford as we kind of wrap up on, on, on him, because yes, he screwed up on occasions. We've also talked about how on plenty of occasions he got it right. See Basako. Uh, see also who is sent in at Fiorentino Don Euro to rescue the situation. 
when Wellington gets it wrong, he sends in the light division. And boy, does Crawford save his bacon. The whole division saves his bacon. Yeah, Fuentes is basically him just flexing to show that I, that yes, Carl was an anomaly. This is what I can do. I will take on the entire French army and I will get the 7th Division back. <laughs> and it is deeply impressive. But what's really curious about Crawford is the contradiction of his character. You know, he has this reputation of being a ferocious individual, but he was also a very tender family man. He actually takes leave on one occasion because he just needs to go home and see his wife. It's, it's as simple as that. He needs to go home to spend time with his family. How, how does that play out as somebody who just kind of struggles to get their head around these sort of, sorts of things? He was, um, to be honest, it's, he, was, he was, like I say, this is one of the reasons why he's a very complicated individual, one of the most fascinating individuals for that, and very tragic for the way he sadly died. Um, he was prone to episodes of this sort of hopeless, bottomless depression that could only be solved by writing and receiving letters from his wife or in some cases actually literally going to see her. And so that level of um, devotion is, is telling in comparison to some, some other stories you hear about, about less harsh generals, we'll say, that this guy who would happily flog anybody for, the minor, for minor problems could become so depressed that he had to go back home to see his family is, is fascinating. But it's not exactly as if the, the, his troops hated him either, particularly. They, they, a, a sort of respect was, was born in his fairness, to be honest. He, didn't, he always had a reason for inflicting punishment and discipline. He didn't do it because he liked cruelty. He did it because he thought it was best for the efficient running of the division. And I think this is borne out by the fact that um, when he died, and as you say, he was buried in the breach at Theodore Rodrigo, Onluk is watched as the pallbearers marching, marched carrying the coffin down the track to the grave. And on approaching a large deep flooded puddle in their way, they plunged right through it without a stop. And veterans of the light division would have said, old black Bob would have wanted it that way. And so, again, I don't think if he'd have, uh, I don't, nobody, nobody was robbing Crawford when he fell. Yeah, there's a mark of respect there, isn't there? Um, and it, again, no, let's not go down that line because that will be a deep crime and punishment conversation. And boy, have we, we've done that to death already. Um, there are so many others that we could go on to talk about on there. Pakenham really springs to mind. Wellington's brother-in-law led the third division in that devastatingly successful attack at Salamanca, but whose career was not only ended by the Battle of New Orleans, where he's killed, but has also been overshadowed by that battle because it doesn't go particularly well. So how much did Pakenham owe to being Wellington's brother-in-law and how much was down to genuine talent? Well, uh, as we've said before, and I think we've said in other episodes, the British Army exists at this time because of who you know. Uh, you know, you, 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 you move on in the British Army because who you know, you can't escape the cronyism. Um, Wellington 
Wellington had it. He had a very he had a very influential brother, and it's the expected that you pass it on. If you get there, you pass it on down the line. You help others. So I don't think it can be um, discounted that Packetum. Uh, was benefited by having Weddington as his brother-in-law. However, strangely enough, actually, it is backed up by a fair degree of talent. If you look at what his record is like. Now, Pakenham shows up at Salamanca, and generally that's the first and last time we hear about him until he gets killed. But Weddington praised that attack very highly, and he said very few of his generals could have done it. Going so far uh, to say that partiality aside, and he very he was very fond of, of Edward Packenham, that he is one of the best we have, and that's a quote. And up until, a up until that time, Packenham had actually been dotting around um, uh, between brigade command and fairly senior staff positions, as you might expect with his connections. But he didn't like staff work. And again, he showed great attacking flair in the Pyrenees. So he certainly had some actual talent to back up the connections. And obviously that's something that Weddington liked a lot. Okay, so New Orleans, what goes wrong? I always think about it and wonder whether the attack was really necessary, but we know that the war was about to end. It's a bit like a Toulouse for Wellington in that regard. And it's important to set that hindsight aside. So enlighten us. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately all wars uh, in the age before instant communications have a delayed ending. And New Orleans is an example of that. It's achieved nothing towards the resolution of the war. It, all it really did was allow Andrew Jackson to one day become president. And for that reason in itself, it should be a great disaster for everybody involved. But um, what went wrong, militarily speaking, was that Pakenham got into one of those situations where um, as an aggressive commander, he's placed himself in a crisis situation uh, and, and he winds up seeing no way out of it except to fight. The attack was, unlike his other offensive work, uh, a shambles. It was uncoordinated, indecisive, badly prepared for. Packenham compounded these errors by exposing himself to the unchecked fire from the American breastworks. Uh, that could not be suppressed by either musketry or artillery. The real tragedy for the British is that the American defenses could have been turned uh, and indeed were turned by Royal Marines who would, uh, and this would have probably forced Jackson to abandon the position uh, if this had gone ahead in conjunction with the more orderly attack. Uh, timings went wrong, the, the, the ladders weren't long enough, the ladders weren't, weren't ready to be moved forward part of the line went forward, part of the line stopped. The loss of control over a surprisingly small battlefield is quite startling. And the Americans just shot them to pieces. And it, it seemed to get so out of control so fast. And then he got hit at least twice that everything broke down. Uh, so I think it's a question, I think it highlights basically that it, it, it really highlights how good commanders like Graham and Hill and people that Wellington trusted out of his sight. Uh, it really highlights their skill and how actually how difficult it is to be a general and to win battles. 
it's not as simple. It's not as simple as looks, basically. Uh, Pakenham did have a good record. He was very, he was probably, he was probably actually, in the minds of the British Army, he was probably thought to be quite suitable for fighting in America because of his good offensive spirit. Um, but it all untangled itself in the difficulties of trying to uh, attack New Orleans. I think another that we have to talk about is Graham isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, the victor of Barossa, we have talked about Barossa in the past. We've talked about how he was a likely successor to Wellington. I find Graham's trajectory really interesting because he was actually deeply Francophile until his wife died and her body was treated disgracefully by the French as he was trying to uh, bring her back to burial. I think customs officers basically broke open her coffin to confirm that there was nothing, no contraband inside. Um, and that was what turned him against specifically the revolution. So talk us through his rise to prominence. Uh, Thomas Graham is another one of those fascinating guys. He's, 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 he's sort of a weird example of that it's never too late, basically. He was much older than you usually are when you begin military service. He'd been born in 1748 and he was like the third son of the laird of uh, Balgowan in Perthshire. And he was educated at Christ Church in Oxford, uh, married his Gainsborough beauty, Mary Cathcart, and he'd basically been contented to be a country gentleman and a family man until his wife died in 1792 and, like you say, very tragically was uh, desecrated, essentially, uh, at, a, at a customs booth. And in 17, so, so in 1793, Graham, fuming and just desperate to to, to basically avenge this this terrible this terrible insult he had got himself onto the staff of Lord Mulgrave an ADC pretty old ADC uh, and took part in the operation at Toulon where he met Rowland where he met a chap called Rowland Hill oh. and he was so filled with the wish to bring his own torment to the Republic of France that he raised the 90th foot at his own expense and became a provisional lieutenant colonel in 1794, setting up Hill as his major, and Hill pretty much made that battalion a very fine one. Weirdly, he ended up as a military commissioner to the Austrians during Napoleon's first Italian campaign and had a few notable adventures, such as escaping from Mantua and taking messages to the Austrians from the besieged city. And after Amiens, he was accompanied, uh, he accompanied, sorry, as he was still only semi-officially a lieutenant colonel, um, Moore to Corona, where after Moore's death, apparently at Moore's request, he was confirmed with backdated seniority as lieutenant colonel. We have to talk about Barossa just briefly. I know we've talked about it to a degree before, especially with regards to the, the French commander, Victor. How much of the victory is down to Graham? I mean, he's not, as, as you kind of alluded to, he's not somebody with years of experience, and yet he is commanding in a, what becomes a kind of surprise defeat for the French. You know, it should have been a pretty simple action, ends up not being, ends up being quite hard fought. But how much of the victory is down to Graham and how much of it is down to just sheer bloody mindedness on the part of British troops? I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. It's difficult to quantify which is more important. 
um, Graham makes the right call from an instinctive place, I guess, in that he chooses to continue the fight uh, at the right time, rather than just trying to get out of there and being cut to pieces as he does. Instead, he goes back and attacks, which the French aren't prepared for. He, however, has the bonus of having the British infantry with him. And the British infantry have the reputation that they're such a solid force that if you even have a mediocre general with, basic, with basically good instincts, they will win the battle for you. You just need to give them the you just need to give them the right options. And Graham gave them the right options and they won the battle for him. Yeah, that's, that's again, I'm so tempted to go to, I'm having to resist kind of going off on one about morale and motivation and the British rank and file uh, during this period. But that is a, a common thing, isn't it? That they do emphatically believe in themselves. And it goes back to Albuera, you know, that thing of not really knowing when you're beaten and just going, no, we are not going anywhere and fighting on and that quite often ends up being something that becomes a turning point until you inflict sufficient attrition on your enemy to then break them in in turn how does graham though compare to the others he commands at san sebastian that obviously takes two attempts we know that wellington doesn't do sieges particularly well but san sebastian's quite different to you know theodore rodrigo badajoz burgos uh, it's a coastal fortress. You can basically only get in on one side. Ultimately, the place does fall. So is it unfair to use San Sebastian as a measuring stick for his ability? It's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, Wellington trusted him like no other general except Hill. He gave him a slightly less leeway than Hill because he understood that he was not as solid and his judgment, but he was given quite a lot of opportunity for independent action. Um, although always carrying out, I think I would, I think it's fair to say he was always carrying out some sort of general intention, like early in the Vittoria campaign. I actually think that Graham, who, as I've said before, is a really interesting guy, um, represents a rare thing in Wellington's army, who is the strategic general. And he excelled operationally rather than tactically. San Sebastian saw his innovative use of supporting artillery fire over the heads of his men to ensure they can get into the breach. That is a tactical decision, but it's at a somewhat different level. Um, and this is also borne out by the fact that he's, his performance of Victoria is middling compared to Picton's, say. And he failed quite badly at Bergen op Zoom in 1814. So it's obvious that for a guy who became a major general at 50, he was doing an impressive job, but there are limits to that capability. And where it's never in doubt is when he's ordered to do a large strategic mission, such as his drive to lever the French out of continuing positions during the Victoria campaign. And so, where does he rank amongst generals, uh, amongst Wellington's generals? Probably quite high. He's, because Wellington's generals never fought particularly their own battles on their own, you only have him, you only have Hill and Beresford to compare him to really. And as a result, he sits probably somewhat above Beresford as a result and below Hill. And that's no 
insignificant place to be, you know, above Beresford, below Hill. That is, you know, a sign that you are, you're capable. I, I like what you say there. It's worth emphasizing just how significant that decision at San Sebastian was because without it, they weren't getting anywhere near that breach. They genuinely weren't. Um, getting into San Sebastian, when you look at it, is you almost wonder how they managed it. It almost looks impossible to get into, um, such as uh, you've only got, you've literally only got one side, which means that everything is concentrated in that one area. It's the perfect um, place to defend. Mm. Um, so again, like at Barassi, he's making the right tactical decisions quite a lot. And that's a that's a very you know it's a very important thing. Like Napoleon said, sometimes luck helps, but it's also making the right calls. <laughs> there are so many more that we could also talk about. Sherbrooke springs to mind. Von Alton. There are also those who were Wellington's subordinates who weren't divisional commanders, but he was very close to. I'm thinking here of his protege, Charles Cox, who's killed at Burgos. You've got Miguel de Alava, who frankly deserves an episode in, in his own right. Who would you say is the most underrated individual? Not necessarily divisional commander, but you can go for divisional commander if you want. Who's the most underrated person under his command? Hmm. Well, there's a question and a half for you. Uh, I'm torn. Okay, there is another elephant in the room here. And I think, to be honest, it has to be him, although I almost chose another guy. I'll, I'll tell you who my second choice was. And he is um, Sir Stapleton Cotton, who is... He was an excellent cavalry commander, Wellington, with, with typical reserve, said he commands our cavalry well. And that was all Wellington wanted from a cavalry commander, overseeing something as delicate as the British mounted arm. Cotton was uh, a, a dandy, excellent horseman, superbly brave, controversial in that he was a slave owner, like Picton. And but known as the Lion d'Or, the Golden Lion, for his fantastic hussar uniforms, up with something something stupid like five hundred guineas and such such like that. But he was never a parade ground fop, and he preferred and he preferred um, uh, his troops to be comfortable rather than like he was. <laughs> and he won battles at Villa Garcia, and let's not forget that he was in command of the cavalry at Salamanca. La Marchant takes all the credit somehow, but he was Cotton's brigadier, not the other way around. Wellington rode up to Cotton afterwards and said, the day is your own. And Cotton commanded, was, was in the Peninsula War almost as much as Wellington was. He only had one short break. And when he was shot by a Portuguese sentry after Salamanca by accident, and he was in all the major campaigns, and that says something about his his capability and his his quality as an officer. And he's very unsung compared to say Uxbridge. But 
I have to think, I have to say, I have to say, although as tempted as I am to go cavalry and say it's cotton, it's actually probably um, George Murray. Good one. Yes. Okay. Explain for folks who aren't familiar. Well, for a start, let's just, let's just blanket this by saying without Murray, nothing happens in the Peninsular Army. He is, the, well, he is Wellington's quartermaster general. He is the man who makes everything happen. He is, Wellington thinks he makes everything happen, or everybody thinks that Wellington makes everything happen. Wellington gives a directive, and then George Murray has to figure out how to make it happen. He has to make, he has to figure out how to, Wellington says, take that town. Okay, how many roads are there to that town? How many places are there to camp on the way to that town? Where are the French in relation to that town? And how long will it take for the baggage train to get there? How then, then you, have, then you have to organize the people with the letters riding to the different divisions with the maps to show them the way to that town. Then this is staff work. The, he, is, he is the chief of staff of the Peninsular Army and he's Wellington's chief of staff. Think about, think about that, okay? That alone should explain why this guy is the unsung hero of the Peninsular Army. Likewise, it's not like he's unknown. A lot of people share this view, um, especially in recent years, but he's still not terribly well known. And unlike combat commanders, he doesn't have the glamour of leading troops in action, although he's, although he's in, he's obviously, he's, he, see, he sees battle all the time and things like that. But yeah, I think it has to be, that has to be George Murray. Yeah, Wellington's effective chief of staff. That is a fair point. But just to play devil's advocate and be difficult for the sake of being difficult, because, hey, it's me and this is what I love to do with you. Uh, just to push you that little bit harder. Welling to be chief of staff to Wellington, the great micromanager of the age, frankly. Was that something that perhaps made it a little bit easier in that, you know, Wellington's there with enough of an eye on the detail that he's talking about the proportion of oats in the feed that those that the horses are receiving and things and so therefore you know wellington might say we're advancing on vittoria we're advancing on via frank or whatever it might be but actually wellington's got a pretty good idea you know i want third division here i want first division oh. leading the way i want seventh division in reserve etc sure sure those are all tactical and strategic um uh considerations murray's not going to touch any of them the order in which divisions march and things are mostly down to wellington and of course he wellington was ridiculously in tune with the logistics of how the army moves and stuff but he also knew that he couldn't he did know he couldn't do everything and so he needed an able deputy who could do all of the things he wanted him to do and more and think about it this way yeah having a boss like wellington means that it's slightly easier on paperwork, but he's also looking over your shoulder all the time. Okay. <laughs> that is fair. And it's, it's a nice moment to end on actually, because it touches a, a theme that we've alluded to the whole way through this about Wellington micromanager. Josh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the Napoleon Assist. Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, it's not connected to the Peninsula War, it's to do with the campaign out in India, the second Maratha War and the JAT campaigns. It's well worth a read. I know I've plugged it before on this podcast a number of times. I make no apologies for doing it again, folks. 
can get it from hellion.co.uk or from the Napoleon Assist bookstore. You can follow Josh on Twitter at, uh, is it at Adventures in History Land? No, it's at, at Land at of Land History. Of, Land of History, where the nickname comes from. At Land of History. Um, but he's under Adventures in History Land. Give him a follow. Josh, absolute delight. Thank you so, so much. Always delighted to come back. Thank you very much. If you've been inspired to read further into the ideas raised in this episode, don't rush off to Amazon. I have an alternative suggestion. Why not support independent bookstores and your boy producing this podcast by buying them via the Napoleon Assist bookshop? Click the link in the description and you'll find a vast range of titles that will be of interest, all arranged by theme, and in the process, independent booksellers get a cut and the Napoleon Assist gets a cut, so there are many who benefit. Do remember to leave a like and review, and as you know I always thank my Patreon supporters, but have good news for those who don't want to make a regular contribution, but do want to leave a one-off tip. You can now tip the Napoleon Assist on Ko-fi, the link is in the description, and know in advance that your generosity, whatever the size of the tip, is hugely appreciated. And of course, no episode would be complete without a shout out to my Patreon supporters, who keep the podcast going through their subscriptions. There are some exclusive perks, including discount codes for pen and sword, voting rights, and even bespoke one-to-ones with me. So be sure to check out the link in the description for more details. A particular thanks to my Emperor-level patron, Mark Staus, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my mentioned-in-dispatches patrons, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice de Graff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. I will be back in just a few days' time as Wellington Month continues to ramp up as it reaches its climax. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.